Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Extra Milestone, your weekly film anniversary podcast where we take a trip to the past to discover the classic films that have made the cinematic landscape what it is today. I am your host, Sam Nolan, and I am joined for the first time on Extra Milestone by one of my very good friends in this uh, strange, cruel world of ours. It is my good friend, Guy Simons Jr. Guy, how's it going? Good, good. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, yeah. You uh, appeared several times on Anyway, That's All I Got, the podcast that uh, I did with Anthony Battaglia and Jason Reed several years ago. And uh, you were one of the first guests that I talked to when Extra Milestone started to expanding. And so I regret taking so long to invite you on the show. But alas, the time has come and I'm glad that we're here. So am I. Yes. No, I'm very glad to be here. Very happy to be talking about the movies that we're talking about today. Yeah, it's going to be a really fun time, and we're going to get into that shortly here. But first, for listeners who maybe didn't listen to Anyway, That's All I Got, uh, Guy, why don't you tell them a little bit about yourself and who you are as a cinephile or otherwise? Well, um, I remember one of the earliest movies uh, introducing me to just, you know, cinema as a whole was Mm -hmm. Star Wars. That was like the biggest, biggest part of my life for a long time, and from that point on, I just always wanted to know more and more about movies and how they're made and, you know, everything specific hmm. around that. So Star Wars was your Star Wars then? Correct. That's nice. That's not often that actually happens. So yes. That's... No, it was, you could say it was a new hope in my life. <laughs> it was an episode four, a new hope. Yes. I'm in, so sorry for that. <laughs> in the book of your life. <laughs> Mine was more like uh, mine was more like an episode three Revenge of the Sith. Interesting, but I I digress. I don't even know what that means. But <laughs> such is the case for many of the things I say. <laughs> exactly. But yes, this is extra milestone, of course. And if you're listening to this uh, around the time when it comes out, that means it's either near or perhaps on. Halloween. So I want to wish everyone a very happy Halloween. I know it's a little bit different this year, what with everything that's going on in the bit. world. Uh, and and that's just, you know, that's just putting it lightly. There are many, many things going on right now. Uh, yeah, this is a nightmare. <laughs> it kind of is. Yeah. And <laughs> so it's actually least. very appropriate because this week, it's actually really, uh, it's, it's actually really fascinating because as a lot of our listeners might know, we on Extra Milestone have been behind several months for a while now and are slowly catching up to the present in terms of what month we're celebrating the anniversaries and stuff. And so the two movies we're going to discuss today were actually released in September, which is so weird. But because of the little bit of a staggered schedule, it actually worked out perfectly so that this week could be the one where we get to talk about two uh, two. Movies that could arguably be qualified as horror. I think we'll get into that conversation a little bit, but they're both very, uh, very, they're both very creeping. They're both very spooky and they're definitely thrilling and have horror elements to them. So just by sheer fate, it worked out this way. So I think uh, that is something worth celebrating. So guy, what do you say we get into the good stuff? Yes, let's let's get into it. Let's get into the meat of this episode. We are going to start by talking about hands down one of the most iconic 
and acclaimed movies of all time is viewed regularly by uh, by cinephiles and and uh, non movie lovers alike. Around, Gentiles, if you will. There you go. Yeah, I I will. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, year round is when is when it's viewed, um, and it's a movie that I remember from the first time I saw it. I was completely blown away. I had never seen anything like it, and that maintains to this day. It is none other than Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 horror, thriller, and perhaps slasher film, Psycho. I want you to see Psycho the way I originally made it, with every scene intact, the version TV did not dare show. The murderer, you see, crept in here, very slowly, of course, the shower was on, there was no sound, and... Uh, See it uncut, intact. No one will be admitted to see it except from the very beginning. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Rated M. Suggested for mature audiences. Parental discretion advised. So, Guy, I want to know, when uh, when I brought up this episode, I you, you seemed relatively enthusiastic about it. So that begs the question, how did you discover Psycho? What was, What's sort of the story of, of uh, this movie in your life? I mean, I don't know if my story is too different from anyone else's. It's just sort of, mm-hmm. you know, always been a, a horror classic that I had, I had always heard about before when I was younger and, you know, always seen the classic shower scene, which we'll get to right. um, through, you know, different various clip shows and YouTube videos and all that. And <clears throat> always wanted to see it. Um, yeah. I was always, always wanted to see it. I saw it when I was about 14, I think, mm. oh, and wow. was fascinated by it. I thought it was incredible. That it was amazing. Nice. I actually have kind of a kind of a similar story. It was, I remember like it was five years ago because it was. It was 2015. <laughs> <laughs> and exactly five years ago. Very well, a little bit over five years, but in the same ballpark. I think it was gotcha. around July or something. And gotcha. I had heard about this movie for so long in the exact same way. Like it was, it was frequently topping lists of the greatest uh horror movies best movies of the 60s best hitchcock movies even Mm -hmm. and one day i'm like you know i'm just gonna bite the bullet i'm gonna watch it and that was actually at a time when uh when movies a little bit older like this were kind of were kind of a thing i was slowly coming to approach and to appreciate and i was like i'm just i'm gonna watch psycho apparently if it's that great i must uh, I, I must like it as, as somewhat of a newcomer. And I think it almost instantaneously became one of my top five movies ever. And spoiler alert, although it's not spoiling anything, I don't know why I said that, it still <laughs> is. I think it's it's I think it's a number four of the most recent list I made of my favorite movies. It's it has not left the top five it, ever since I first saw it, though. It is really fantastic and i can't wait to get to discuss it and one thing that i actually wanted to i I knew about but it wasn't until doing research for this episode that i really got to figure out a lot of the details is just how unique of a release 
this movie has as in when it was first uh released back in i think july of 1960 it had sort of a limited release and then went wide in september as i mentioned earlier and it was kind of unprecedented the way that it was exhibited to the public i don't know if you know any of that guy uh i know some of it i know about the uh you know they during the trailer it would say don't spoil this to your friends or whatever yeah so you know in the in the, in the marketing it had a a thing that made people want to go see it because they were like, what, what is it? What can I not reveal? Uh-huh. It was, and, and I don't know if, I don't know if you've seen this, but the trailer for Psycho actually has no footage from the movie. It's very unique in the sense that it is just Alfred Hitchcock walking around the set of the Bates Motel and the mansion next to it. And just saying like, so here's where it happened. Here's where the stabbing took place and all the blood and oh my. And you would think it sounds like he's spoiling the movie, which in a sense he kind of is. But what he's actually doing is painting the events of the movie as though it were an actual thing that happened and that this is just sort of a dramatization or perhaps even almost a documentary look at it, which of course it isn't because it's a narrative movie and everything. Right, but of course. It's really unique in the way that it really built up its own myth before it came before it even came out. Sort of like a uh, pre like a Blair Witch Project or something. Yeah, yeah, that's I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, this is definitely a progenitor of that right. kind of thing. Right down to the fact that and this is actually uh, kind of one of the most fascinating pieces of trivia about it. This movie made a point, and and the distributors and Alfred Hitchcock himself, they made a point of saying to theater owners, okay, what they did most of the time was they would allow anyone, like, at, at almost any point throughout the movie to walk up to the box office and buy a ticket and walk into the movie right in the middle of it. Like, they didn't have to be there at the beginning uh, or anything. They could just go in and sort of kill time. Like, it wasn't this sort of sacred uh experience that a lot of people view it as today of we have to see the whole thing and it's got to be done right they could just sort of wander in like catch the last 20 minutes of robot monster or whatever whatever <laughs> was coming out at the time robot monster. That is, i want to see that. that is that is one of the worst movies ever made by the way <laughs> But is it's that the first real thing. Robot Monster? Is that oh yeah, oh it's my God. very no, it's very notorious. The Roman. No, no. <laughs> Look up Robot Monster and don't thank me later. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna seek that out. And I'm gonna watch. <laughs> I bet, I bet Jason would love this. We got, we got Jason Reed right in the next room from Guy. By the way, so yes, this is, he's my roommate. Yeah, little, little uh, extra milestone synergy. But regardless. Uh, they made a point and they said, do not let anyone in after the movie has started. And to this day, I can I can attest to this at the theater where I work at. That is the hard cutoff. The second the trailers before the movie end and the thing starts, that's it. No one can walk in after that. And it's so weird to think that this is kind of right where it started. There were a, there were a small handful of other movies that had done something kind of similar but this was the first one to be publicized as widely uh, as widely as it was, and I believe it may have been the first American movie to do so. Oh wow! And no uh, and and they did. And I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember when I think it was Avengers: Infinity War and I mean, most likely Avengers: Endgame, and I think maybe even Star Wars Episode Nine. At the theaters where I went to at the time, they had posters and placards all throughout the lobby 
saying, do not talk about the events of this movie in the lobby because someone might hear and they might get it ruined for them. They said like they were very uh, strict about it, uh, about ruining the experience for others. Whoa. Turns out. You, you do remember that? No, I did not. I actually, I actually saw Star Wars, Star Wars, like a week after it premiered because mm-hmm. there was just stuff going on in my life at the time. I wasn't able to see it premiere night, but um, yeah, I saw it like a week later, so it definitely wasn't still happening. I just had to like really avoid Twitter aggressively mm-hmm. in order to have the you know an unspoiled experience. I think everyone stopped caring after a week. Yeah. After a week, everyone was like, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. That, that happened. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move but, on. But regardless, mm. as it turns out, it kind of started with psycho. They had, uh, they had all these things, actually standees of Alfred Hitchcock in like theater lobbies and stuff, which is so funny. Oh just God. imagine walking into like the picture house and see, oh, there's a cardboard cutout of Alfred Hitchcock asking me not to talk about this movie. <laughs> the most That's fascinating awesome. thing is that the movie is based off of the 1959, I want to say, novel by Robert Block. And what happened was that Hitchcock bought the rights to the novel and then bought as many copies of the book as he could so that no one could figure out what happened. Like, oh, okay. took this incredibly seriously and said wanted to create an experience unlike any other. And it made me realize that Psycho is kind of an experimental movie in a lot of ways, not just in the way that it was creating this theatrical experience that had never been done before and did so very successfully, uh, not to mention that as well, but also just the movie itself. It was a very obvious departure from a lot of the work that he had done up to that point, like just the year, just in the handful of years before he'd done Vertigo and North by Northwest. Those were both like, you know, Technicolor marvels with huge budgets and stuff that just went across not necessarily the globe but just a ton of different locations this movie is very intimate and very cheap on purpose it's the soundstage is the exact same set that was used for alfred hitchcock presents the uh, television show that he did in the 50s and just and, and it was just very uh very shoestring production and stuff the the special effects were pretty elementary although there were a few things they needed to uh, throw a little money at and it's just sort of it it, it's, it, it almost feels like a b movie especially because it's in black and white that was to save money that was kind of their thesis like if people see these like really bad movies there's a reason i brought up robot monster <laughs> they see that in the theaters and just think nothing of it what are they going to think when they see a movie that they think isn't going to be that good, that they think is just going to be some, you know, generic pot boiler. And it happens to be one of the best movies ever. It's, it's a good thing that it ended up being that, wouldn't you say? Oh, very much so. Yeah. I didn't know that the reason why they chose to shot, shoot it in black and white was, was to save money. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think it might have been a stylistic choice uh, as well, which which also works dramatically. But yeah, it was it was a lot of it was just to sort of give this unassuming impression, like we're not some big, uh, you know, event picture, at least not on the surface. Gotcha. And yet, it uh, there's there's uh, all this stuff lurking under the surface, and the fact that they kept it such a mystery 
only added to the mystique of it to the point where it dramatically over overperformed. And what's funny is that Alfred Hitchcock, instead of I, and I and I might be remembering some details incorrectly, but up until that point, what he had done most of the time was just accepted salary pay for every movie. And he said, okay, instead, I'll just take, I think it's like 60% of the profits of this movie. And because all of the distributors didn't think it would do that well, they're like, sure. And he ended up making like hundreds of millions of dollars off of it. So Alfred Hitchcock, a real cheeky minx when it comes to the production of this movie which i love and 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 if you watch the the trailer that i mentioned earlier where he's just going around the hotel and the mansion it's just it's just so awkwardly staged like there's a reason alfred hitchcock is not an actor let me just (laughs) put it that way He's not very convincing at it and is is clearly like putting on a performance and so it's just kind of funny to watch and yet he really is the mastermind behind all of this and so i think that makes it all the more valuable and uh one other one other fun fact before we actually get into the movie itself is and and i just thought this was hilarious after a, a few years after this movie came out and i don't know what it was for but alfred hitchcock wanted to shoot part of a movie at disneyland and Walt Disney himself said, no, <laughs> of course, because he you made that horrible movie psycho. <laughs> so even Walt Disney was just appalled by this thing. So I think that should tell you. Is Alfred Hitchcock everything. the reason why no one can film at Disneyland? You know what? <laughs> I would not be at all surprised. So I don't know if we're better or worse off because of it, <laughs> right. honestly. Who knows? We may never know. Yeah, truly. But regardless, that's, that is... All this, all this stuff is just to sort of add to the legacy of the movie, mm-hmm. I think, and lend some context. Yeah, well, just uh, show where it's coming from because I think more so than a lot of movies we talk about, there's actually a lot that went into the production and distribution of this movie. So I thought that was definitely worth bringing up. But the time has come, and now I, I want to say this: now, usually on extra milestone. And this goes for both of the movies we're going to uh, discuss today. Usually on Extra Milestone, we're pretty willy-nilly about uh, about spoilers. We tend not to go out of our way to reveal things that happen. With both of these movies, and I and I don't say this often, there are huge things that happen in it. Huge. And and if and if you don't know them, then the there's a good chance that the movie might be uh not necessarily ruined, but definitely uh definitely altered if you hear what is going on. Oh, so if you if you haven't seen it, leave now because I'm gonna spoil the ending right at the beginning. Oh really? Okay. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, you, hey, you can. We can sort of jump around, but regardless, that's I I want to I just want to clear up that this is sort of a unique case in which yes I think the uh, uh, spoilers to use the common phrase the actually do matter <laughs> right yes and uh, which, which is not always the case in fact it almost never is and these are two of the ones where it does yeah, so, very important if you don't know the ending <laughs> just keep that in mind over the course of this entire episode with that in mind. We already sort of, uh, we already sort of established this that we're both very big fans of the movie. But guy, yes. tell me, uh, you you uh, you rewatched 
the movie Psycho for this episode. Yes. What were what 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 uh, takeaways did you have this time that that you hadn't had before? What's something that occurred to you that hadn't before, if there is anything? Um, I mean, mainly just how actually like pretty creepy it is. Um, mm-hmm. It never really creeped me out before. For some reason, this time I was just I was just watching it by myself in my room, and I was like, it's actually like really unsettling. Like Tony Perkins is really good as Norman yeah. Bates, and he really is very unsettling at certain points. Uh huh. Yeah, I think that's I think I remember that being my biggest takeaway the first time I saw it is wow, this actor is so unbelievably convincing as this character who clearly is not quite all right in the head. Right. Uh has experienced a lot of trauma, a lot of uh, just really horrible things throughout his life and yet is able to play that sort of split role so well. I'll never forget there's, and we're sort of jumping around a little bit, but the scene sort of a little bit later on in the movie where Martin Balsam as the private investigator Mm. shows up at the Bates motel and is starting to ask like, so uh, did, did anyone, uh, has anyone come to visit your hotel recently? And he's trying and failing so So hard hard to play it off. Yeah. I'm like, oh God bless him. He really tried to wiggle his way out of this. Like, no, no one, no one showed up. Oh, well, I see a name right here in the registry. Oh, you know what? I'm I'm starting to remember now. Yeah. I'm like, oh dude. Yeah, the second oh, you start backpedaling in that situation, you're done. Like he already knows that you've murdered that person. Exactly. And it's actually, and that brings me to kind of one of the most interesting points. And I remember reading Roger Ebert's review about this some time ago. And he mentioned that there is a scene in this movie that is very integral that might not seem like it on the surface, but actually it's kind of the key to why it's so successful. And it's after the shower scene, which we'll, we'll trace back through the entire plot in a minute, but it's, it's right after the shower scene and it's when Norman Bates comes down, sees what's happened, and what follows is just like, I think it might be like five or six minutes maybe of just tidying up the crime scene. Yeah. It's just like very unsettling. It really is, especially with just the uh, the way he's able to like sort of collect himself and be like, oh, okay, I just got to deal with this now. Yeah. Uh, watching it the first time, you might be sort of like, what, what, what's going on? Yeah. I have no idea. And- What's happening in that scene is that we're seeing a shift in protagonists. We're seeing that this character that we followed for about half the movie up until that point, I think I I remember checking the time. It's about an hour in when Janet Lee as Marion Crane is killed and it's almost two hours. So functionally it's half the movie Mm -hmm. and then it's just murdered, like really unceremoniously. Mm -hmm which is which is remarkably unexpected. I think it's part of the reason why they wanted to hide what was going on in the movie so much is because if you knew that going in, the surprise would not hit so hard. Yeah, it's a but bold move to kill off your main protagonist an hour into the film. <laughs> it really is, especially when there was this whole other story going on up until that point. Right. And that's what I love is that the... It, it, the story of someone stealing $40,000 going on the run and just trying to evade capture and, and, you know, make a new life away from it all. That's a movie right right there. Like that doesn't, that doesn't even need anything, but then it wanders into a slasher movie kind of by accident, like (laughs) just 
pulls in the motel and oh now this other genre is going to envelop everything and so it's really remarkable in the way that it switches genre kind of on a dime and then also switches protagonist where we see norman Bates doing all this stuff cleaning up the crime scene and then kind of the most telling scene is when he goes to push marion's car into like that swamp that's nearby and then for a second it looks like it's not gonna sink completely and i want to guy i want to hear your reaction to this in a second but every time i've watched that i've been like oh no it's not gonna sink and then i realize i'm a monster (laughs) (laughs) yeah why am i on this guy's side all of a sudden (laughs) exactly it's so weird do do you have the same reaction to that no i have the exact i had the exact same reaction today i saw that and i've seen this movie multiple times but for some reason every time that happens i go no (laughs) and then i'm like wait what why bring it together why are you trying to why do you feel bad for this guy (laughs) he's he's crazy it's such a strange thing that this movie does and then the rest of that is of course the investigation and and for a while it's like okay we want we want everything to turn out okay but we also are not entirely sure what's going on and so the fact that the mystery is held throughout the entire thing only adds to the power of it but i want to backtrack a little bit because we haven't focused a whole lot on kind of the first half of the movie so it opens and we see uh marion crane played by janet lee who's uh, who's just remarkable in this movie oscar nominated only oscar nominated actor for this movie weird oh, wow. you'd think yeah. you'd think anthony perkins would would have been nominated as well yeah. but alas uh this was not the time and interesting with uh, with with her lover Sam Loomis, played by John Gavin, who I, I'm sure you know this, was almost cast as James Bond. I in... did not know that actually. Wow! Oh, really? I think that might be the first time you said a James Bond fact <laughs> that I didn't already know. I did not know that he was considered for James Bond. That's crazy. Yes, I I have my secrets. Yes, you do. But yeah, it was after Honor Majesty's Secret Service. George Lazenby left. They cast John Gavin. Mm. As a way to taunt Sean Connery into coming back. <laughs> I love how much like, of a vendetta Cubby Broccoli had against Sean Connery after he left those movies. <laughs> John Gavin, who the hell does he think he is? Yeah. I'm coming back. I love how much they hated each other. Uh, Have you seen that clip of Sean Connery on the Johnny Carson or whatever? Oh, no. What happened? He, he, uh, I forgot exactly what the question is, but it's something along the lines of, do you know what, who the next villain is for the next movie or whatever? <laughs> and Sean Connery just goes, Cubby Broccoli. <laughs> and then, which is like really inside baseball, inside baseball for the audience. Cause like, how did they know who Cubby Broccoli is? But yeah, unless they paid really close attention to the credits, right. they're going to, they're not going to know who that is. Exactly. It's like, uh, this is, we're, we're off on a tangent, but yes. so be it. This is extra milestone. <laughs> There was there was this theory, and I have no idea if it was ever concluded in any way, that when Avengers 3 Infinity War came out, that Thanos was modeled after Joss Whedon. Oh, yes. Have you ever heard that <laughs> yes, theory? Yes, no, I have heard that, yes. <laughs> like, I can kind of see it. That's such a weird thing, though. I don't see <laughs> yeah. why they're... I don't see what they're so upset about. Right, he didn't do anything to them specifically. <laughs> Just the fans right, were yeah. mad at him, not, not the other way around. Oh, my. The... the, the the inner workings of the entertainment industry are an enigma that we may never understand. Oh, it's fascinating. It really is. But regardless, we're getting getting back to the actual movie we're yes, talking about. So, Psycho. Mm-hmm. It's really good. It, it's it's a solid film. 
It really is. <laughs> yeah. That's putting it lightly. But anyway, so yeah, they they're uh, they just want to they just want to get away from it all. And we find out that Marion is working as sort of like a desk clerk at this little uh, loan office. Is is the sense I get? And then this guy comes in and is just this really like boisterous fellow and says like yeah my daughter's getting married and here's my wedding present to her holds up this huge thick envelope it's four hundred thousand dollars in cash it's a lot of money yeah especially for what the, the 60s. hell yeah like that's i i found out i don't i can't remember exactly what it was but that's something like three hundred thousand dollars today like adjusted for inflation did i say four hundred thousand? i meant forty thousand yeah i think it's 40 is what it is yeah yeah i i i may have confused it too but regardless it's a huge stack of money yeah and i'm like oh my gosh the 60s man you just <laughs> carry cash around yeah in this volume all the time it's weird to me that they're surprised she took it <laughs> yeah it's like very, all right very easy to just here keep it take take this envelope and take it over to the bank and deposit it all it's just forty thousand dollars in untraceable bills <laughs> exactly. that we're just that we're just letting you have and so and if you run away with it we might never find you again because we don't have the internet <laughs> exactly yeah i think i think it's a it's a good thing that security is a little stronger <laughs> yeah. these days in this specific scenario yes agreed but regardless, and I like that she takes like it's it's kind of an immediate decision. Like, oh, this is it. This is my chance. I'm going to take this money and run away with it. And she pretends like, oh, I'm not feeling well. <laughs> Precisely. It's like, okay, you can go home after this. I'm like, this is a very lax work environment. <laughs> I will say that right now. Yeah, you can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. You can't be like, I'm not feeling well. I'm going to head out early. Especially when there's only like three employees in the entire office. Right. It's it's a very empty office. Yes, continue. It it really does. (laughs) She decides, okay, I'm going to take off with it and then sees her boss on the street corner. And I remember always getting really terrified, like, oh, gosh, this is going to be it. And what what happens after that, and this is something I've always found really fascinating, and I have kind of a unique interpretation of it that I want to hear your thoughts on. But we see these shots of Janet Lee driving, and it's just like just her face in the car. And we're hearing this voiceover of the uh, of of like the police and her friends and her sister talking about. So where do you think Marion went? Oh, I saw her. Uh, I, I, I you know I saw her leaving the other day. I'm not sure exactly what was going on. And I think there are actually a couple ways to interpret this. The first one is that it's just Marion imagining what those conversations might be like. I think that's a reasonable assumption. The way I've always looked at it is that it's sort of jumping into the future. And this is like the clues that will eventually lead to a story of a disappearance and later a death. Like, like it's something that you might read in the newspaper, like a quote from a friend or, uh, or an acquaintance or whatever. And I think that build that, that builds upon the sort of almost documentary like approach that they took to this movie. Does that make any sense when I'm describing? No, I, that makes complete sense. I totally, I totally get that. I've always sort of thought of it as more of Hitchcock sort of, uh, mirroring the relationship between Marion and Norman, Hmm. because 
she gets a voiceover at the beginning of the film, and then he also gets a voiceover at the end of the movie, but oh, it's his mother's wow. voice instead. I had never thought about that. That's fascinating. So really showing that that uh, they they really are sort of destined to meet at two cross paths. Yes, that's how I always took it. Um, that's really fascinating. Yeah, and like you know, as the as she's driving down the road, the camera pushes in further and further, closer and closer to her face. And it does the same thing at the end with Norman Bates as it pushes yeah. closer and closer. And they, it both ends, ends with both of them sort of smiling directly at the camera and then fading into something else. Wow. That's that. I had never even thought about that. That's really fascinating. It's uh, yeah, I, that's, that's brilliant. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> I got to hand it to you for that. I uh, appreciate that. Really, really, really mirroring the experience. Yeah. There's a lot of, like straight on close-ups of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's at this point where I want to acknowledge this is a silly thing and it has, it has nothing to do with anything, but it's, I love the staged cars in this movie. Like they're so funny to me because there's something I, I always love stage cars because that's, if you don't know, that's when they have an actor in like a fake sort of the body of a car and then a background of like a road is projected onto a green screen in the background or something like that. And I always love seeing it because they're always driving in a straight line. And then the actor, for whatever reason, is just turning the wheel willy nilly <laughs> and they're not left and right <laughs> just to sort of, you know, feign that they're driving. Right. And it's something so funny to me. I think it's best in this movie later on when we see, uh, I think it's Vera miles driving the car and she's just turning the wheel <laughs> willy nilly and nothing in the car is not turning at all. And I just love that little detail. Yeah, no, that happens a lot in the James Bond movies, and I appreciate that a lot. Uh, <laughs> just Sean Connery just aggressively steering. <laughs> <laughs> That's something that uh, Quentin Tarantino paid homage to in Pulp Fiction when Bruce Willis gets in the taxi cab. Right. It's like a really obvious stage car. <laughs> yeah. It's a kind of a comical degree, right. and so I think that's really funny. <laughs> but we digress. Yes. and again. She eventually she starts getting tailed by uh, a highway uh, patrolman, and and this is just such a time capsule right here is that in over the course of like five minutes, she's able to pull into this used car lot, get rid of her car and just get a new one. Yeah. And that's all it takes. Just seven hundred dollars in cash right in there. Cash. And I'm like, My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Which today isn't that crazy. But for 19 for the 60s, that's insane to pay seven hundred dollars in cash. And I'm I'm just talking about the simplicity of it all. Like that there's too, almost yeah. nothing to sign. <laughs> there's nothing to like, you know, inspect the car or anything. There's not like a waiting period. Right. I'm like, man, to live in the 1960s and, and just be to be able person. to <laughs> Exactly. Well, that's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just to just to be able to go in and get <laughs> just get a car if you feel like if, it. If you're so inclined. And so there, there are so many things in this movie that I find just such a such a unique time capsule, and it's part of the reason why I love it. But eventually, she finds her way to the Bates Motel, and it's at this point where the movie starts to change, as we mentioned this far, and it becomes kind of the first, uh, the at least one of the first slasher movies. This is something that's brought up a lot about what was actually the first, and there are a few ways to look at it. 
where what was the first to really incorporate some very specific uh, motifs and cliches and plot points? A lot of people will point to John Carpenter's Halloween or uh, Bob Clark's Black Christmas or even the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I never I'm curious thought about. So sorry, I was, <laughs> I was going to say I never thought about that. Michael Myers also uses a kitchen knife, which is the same knife that the That's mom true. uses in this movie. Sorry, you know it's funny. The the uh, the I forget what exactly what occupation he has, but the character played by Donald Pleasance in Halloween Oops. is named Sam Loomis. Yeah, after. Oh my god! Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> everything's clicking for me right now. I gotta. <laughs> yeah. Named after John Gavin's character yeah, wow. in Psycho. So John Carpenter knew. Oh, I've never put that together. Clever man, that Carpenter, I say. Good old Johnny boy. <laughs> but regardless, I'm curious, What do, do you have an opinion on this about whether or not Psycho counts as a slasher movie? Yeah, no, I've been thinking about it a lot since I watched it. Because I watched it earlier today. Um, mm. If I actually consider this like a slasher movie. I, yeah. I want to say yes, because the the scenes are, can be brutal at times. They never show like, you know, a full on stab, but mm-hmm. it can be brutal at times. So I guess, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Yes. <laughs> it's it's definitely a thin line. Yeah. And I think the I've, I've thought about it a little, not at huge lengths or anything, mm-hmm. but I think I am actually going to say no. And here's why is because the slasher movies sort of emerged in the early to mid seventies and were kind of just a huge thing for a couple of decades until the, the nineties at the earliest and perhaps even longer than that. And not that, the, not that it necessarily has to be uh, sequestered to that time period. But I think if you were to watch like a Friday, the 13th movie, uh, a, a nightmare on Elm street movie, a Halloween movie and psycho psycho would feel really out of place. And I think it's because of that structure where it starts as one thing and then becomes something else. I think the fact that it happens to be a guy with a knife killing people is kind of incidental. I think that's just, you know, that just happens to be part of the movie. It's not necessarily that they were leaning into a genre. I think slashers were very specifically trying to tap into kind of this lurid, uh, a teenage motif of the time and and had a lot of elements of revenge and legacy and stuff like that. I think there's part of that in Psycho, but I think at the end of the day, it does become its own thing. But at the same time, you can definitely see that this is the movie that with its minimalism and with its sort of haunting atmosphere throughout the whole thing, was definitely being viewed a lot by the pioneers of the slasher genre over a decade later. Do, oh, do you think that's fair? Oh, of course. Yeah. No, it's very obvious that this influenced a lot of movies after it. Yeah. And and it's clear to see why. So, the, so from here is when uh, the actual, I don't want to say the real movie, but the actual movie sort of emerges and we find out what this thing is actually, which is sort of a look into just sort of the haunted places of Earth. You know what I'm saying? Where like there are there's just all this sort of evil sort of festering in the little corners where not everyone is even looking until they realize that they're there. 
and then it's too late. And it's, again, like you mentioned earlier, it lends to that creepy factor. And to this day, I will think about this movie and many others. Uh, that, that's just one of my greatest fears is just finding myself in the clutches of one of these evil places. You know what I'm saying? No, I agree. And I think what it does, what it's sort of trying to do is uh, show, you know, sort of like the darkness taking over over her mm-hmm. over Marion's character because you know she i feel like she starts off like you know to use a star wars term on the light side and mm-hmm. then steals the money and then just slowly more and more crosses over into the dark <laughs> which i think is what that uh the whole sequence of her driving down the road because it starts off in the day and it becomes dark as she gets closer to the mm-hmm. Bates, Bates motel and that's I true feel like it's you know showing her crossing over to this different side of the world you know, she's sort of crossing yeah. a threshold into, you know, whatever you want to call Norman Bates's world. Mm-hmm. The the psycho world, let's sure. call it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that before, but you're absolutely right. And it's and and one thing I love about this movie that I always just kind of take this weird delight in. Marion Crane is a bad fugitive. Like seriously, <laughs> yes. even if she weren't murdered in cold blood for at, for reasons that she had no control over i i highly doubt she would have been able to get away with this like no, she's she not would have maybe made it to oregon <laughs> maybe they so found her. <laughs> she made it to california and they tracked her down pretty quickly <laughs> yeah so i feel like she might have made it just outside california and then they would have pounced on her like it it wasn't hard at all like yeah. what is what is her end game here because no well and i think that's sort of the whole point is that this was on just an impulse like oh suddenly this forty thousand dollar blessing landed in my lap of course i'm gonna take it why why not sorry i've got the hiccups i'm so I'm getting so emotional about this movie it's an it's emotional film <laughs> it is isn't it it's heavy but but yeah she is she is acting on impulse and what i like is that when uh, she eventually has a conversation with norman bates and realizes like you know what? I didn't have things that bad. Like I maybe I, I made a mistake and I think it's time that I went back. And I actually read to speaking to what you're saying about sort of the light going into the darkness. And I hadn't noticed this. I'm going to make sure to pay attention to it next time. Uh, it And the uh, opening scene of the movie where she's in the hotel room with John Gavin, she has on a white uh, bra and then in the movie and later in the movie right before she gets killed she has on a black one wow so just going to illustrate that uh difference earlier but then even though she's deciding to not to go through with it it's still at night so she's still in that world of darkness and thus is while sort of and and we're and of course we're getting to the the very iconic shower scene here it's sort of a way to illustrate that, okay, she has decided to sort of cleanse herself of sin or perhaps uh, uh, attempted or considered sin at the very least. And yet uh, there's no turning back. It's almost as if, and this, and I'm only just now thinking about this, so I'm sort of going to be talking it out in real time. Is what, is her fate, is it a punishment or is it just sheer accident? And uh you know sheer chance 
that anyone could find themselves in. Do you have a thought on on that? Right as I say it, Ooh, I had not thought about that. Um, this is why the movie's so good. We're yeah, still, discovering still discovering things, new things as we're talking about it. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I think I don't know. I think I think she just stumbles upon it. I don't. I don't. Yeah, feel like it was meant to be a punishment for her character. I it think so too. Sort of just feels like she just happens to stop at this motel where Norman Bates works. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, cause here's the thing. If everyone were punished in this way, if they were murdered out of the blue mm-hmm. for any sort of, for, for, for stepping out of line in any way, whether it's, you know, legally or whatever, uh, then no one would be alive still. Right. There's, you know, everyone is, is guilty of sin, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I think the PI might be the only one that's like, fine <laughs> maybe so yeah, maybe so he deserves but, to get killed and he's got lots of work if everyone's getting killed right so that's true Fair that's point. Cer- that's certainly an aspect to consider mm-hmm. but regardless i think yeah i think i th- i agree i think that this is just it's sort of allowing us to sympathize with her saying like yes we've all made mistakes and some of us have been lucky enough to realize it before it was too late and go back on it but what if right when we decided to do the right thing what if this x factor were introduced to our lives and that was it like that was the end of everything and so that's what makes it so horrifying is just how out of nowhere it shows up like we've been introduced like we know that norman's mother is living up in the house and is a little strict and stuff right and he's a little odd yeah of course naturally and i think anthony perkins uh portrays that really well i love that he's got a bag of candy corn like that's (laughs) kind of that's just this funny little bit apparently that was uh, anthony perkins choice they were allowed a lot of uh, improvisation to sort of make their characters their own matter of fact janet lee in her own head, created an entire backstory for Marriott Crane oh, wow. that never showed up in the movie, but just informed her character that much more. So I think that's very, very good acting right there. No, it's fascinating. What was I talking about earlier? How the, uh, oh gosh, <laughs> my ADD to. is, is no, crazy. I also got distracted by the, him having by the candy corn. Candy corn yeah. <laughs> Do it not get distracted me. by <laughs> candy corn. Forgot now. <laughs> uh norman bates and his mom oh you were talking That's about right. how it turning back she was about to turn back yeah yeah yes and how you know this is sort of like okay i'm just gonna i'm just gonna take a shower i'm going to start anew i might have to wiggle my way out of this but you know i'm I, i'm gonna make things right plus they said uh when uh i think i forgot who says it someone says someone says at some point that they aren't gonna press charges for her stealing the money is what someone says at some point. So like she oh, could have really? very easily, yeah, she could have very easily just come back and just gave the money back and everything would have been fine. Hmm. You know, she probably could have went back to her normal life and everything would have been great. Yeah. But, you know, very quickly things go south. Yeah. And it's, and it's, um, this sort of just attempt to, in air quotes, get away from it all. You know, the the daily grind, the having a job and having, you know, rent to pay and everything. What if I could just escape from it all? And what she finds out is that that's not really a thing that we can do. And shortly after that uh, is murdered very gruesomely. And it's in the iconic shower scene with, I found out in doing research that movie or that movie, that scene originally had no score to it. Oh, wow. I can't imagine that. And and apparently Bernard Herman, the, 
brilliant composer for this movie. Apparently Hitchcock said, yeah, don't bother with a score. And he was like, well, I'm going to F and do it anyway. And here, <laughs> oh, wow. take a look at this hitch. And then Alfred Hitchcock was like, say <laughs> it was it was turned around so just composing music on the sly and to this day it is one of the most iconic pieces of film music of all time just those screeching violins it's almost hard to listen to yeah and so no, it kind of hurts almost it really does and it makes it all the more effective that mm-hmm. this person is getting killed apparently they use chocolate syrup for blood because it showed up better on camera that makes sense Nice little fact. I don't think that would have been nearly as convincing in color. It's like, why is Marion Crane <laughs> dripping chocolate? <laughs> is she an alien? What movie is that? That would have been. That, that would have. Can you imagine that? <laughs> that That's movie? the B movie I want to see. <laughs> Marion as an alien, but she doesn't know she's an alien. It's like the thing. Ooh, and that could be really interesting. <laughs> That's what I want to see. John Hollywood, Parker, psycho. I know you're listening. <laughs> Get on it. They're always listening. Every podcast. Oh, they really are. <laughs> But anyway, and it's just this huge shock. And apparently it was very traumatizing naturally to many audience members, including Janet Lee. That's the funniest thing is that this scene took a week to film. And it wasn't until she saw the complete edited version that she got really scared and actually never took a shower again. (laughs) She never took a shower again. Yeah, that's unsanitary, but. Wow. Oh, well, she took baths. I mean, that's... oh, oh, I see what you're okay. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you meant she just never bathed. No, <laughs> <Just> no. Period. <laughs> yeah, that would have been very strange. Yeah. Just wandered into a waterfall once a week. And <laughs> yeah. That was everything. That was that was the most she did. Gotcha. That's that's fascinating. That's crazy. Because it's just the vulnerability, you know. And... Oh, yeah. No, that'd be horrifying. Every, who doesn't have that fear of just like being in the shower and just having someone burst into the bathroom at your most mm-hmm. vulnerable moment? <laughs> Yeah. Luckily I'm six seven, so I can always see over the curtain. <laughs> Same, yeah. <laughs> Did I say six seven? I meant six, six five. five. I don't know yeah. why I said six. Uh, <laughs> We're both six five, by the way, for those of you who are listening. <laughs> that's true. The welcome to the tall young man yes, podcast. The tall cast. With Sam and Guy G- Gam. No? <laughs> sort of works. <laughs> we'll f- we'll figure it out. Yeah. We can work it out later. Yeah, we'll figure it out off off mic. We keep we we keep digressing. But such is <laughs> the nature. Such is the nature of our conversations. Yes, I think it's fine. Always. And yeah, and of course, this was a huge sort of censorship bugaboo because this was this was 1960. It was after the production code. It still technically existed, but it had certainly waned. Like no one, no one really cared enough to impose anything incredibly strict uh, at the time. I feel like people were still and, making like weird stuff at this time and like not really following the Hayes production code. Yeah, they were sort of just getting it released where they could. But yeah, it, and uh, this was also notably the first American movie, at least, where a toilet was seen flushing on camera. Very scandalous, this Whoa. movie is. Yeah. yeah, a lot of firsts with this one. A lot of firsts. And Breaking so it only... Left and right. It only goes to that uh, cultural and historical significance. And yeah, then what follows after that for the next 45 minutes is just the investigation of what the hell happened. And it's sort of, I feel like this, the second half of this movie is sort of riding the high from the first half. Like, objectively speaking, the, the rest of this movie and even the beginning, it's sort of everything except for that middle section, which we just fixated on is sort of 
just a very at least by our modern eyes kind of a standard like missing person sort of investigative thing there's it's nothing like co- the second half is like a cop procedural it's like an episode of law and order the second half it, it really is except they think that they're dealing with something very you know very normal by the books of course someone's missing that there's nothing normal about that but they've dealt with this before and what we the audience know is that no they haven't this is something really uh, unusual and it's a, it's a miracle that only one other person died because of it yes very much a miracle a breakthrough if you will a yes a psychotic breakthrough <laughs> yes <laughs> something like that and yeah and it just uh i actually weirdly enough i don't have a whole lot to say about that second half except that it's very tense and it's very uh just the way that it slowly reveals what's going on where we find out that marion or, or uh uh Norman Bates' mother died 10 years ago. Yeah, and that who's was buried up on top of that hill. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, no, I honestly forgot about the reveal that he's the one who killed his mom and her lover. And mm-hmm. uh, that honestly really shocked me. Yeah. <laughs> Watching it this morning, I was like, <gasps> <laughs> Wait, I've seen this before. What am I doing? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's been a while since I've seen this. It's actually been since like 2016. So I didn't realize it had been that long. So it was wonderful to get to go back to it that's one thing i love about extra milestone is i don't i don't re-watch movies a lot right like just as a habit but when i get to i make sure to revel in it and so i'm i'm fortunate to get the chance to do that uh, a lot of the time on this very show but yeah and then it just goes on and we find out that wait a minute it was norman all along right right under your nose right under our noses and the last place you'd expect why she wouldn't even hurt a fly and this was <laughs> wonderful wonderful ending and i think and i want to get one last i want to i want to talk about one last thing specifically mm-hmm. uh i want to ask you guy yes the not the very ending like not the last shot of this movie but kind of right before that the sort of winding down where we where uh where norman has been apprehended or perhaps norman's mother as well has been apprehended Mm. and we have this psychologist come in and just sort of take like five minutes explaining everything about the character Mm. and the movie has gotten a lot of retroactive criticism saying this is a little unnecessary it drags on a little too much i'm curious what is your stance on that do you think it's a little bit unnecessary or do you think it only uh adds to sort of you know, put a button on the movie, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's necessary for the time it was released. Cause this is mm-hmm. like one of the first of these movies to do that sort of reveal. I feel yeah. like with our modern eyes, we're like, all right, it's a bit unnecessary. Cause I feel like today you would just need a few like cutaways to like a, a framed picture or something. Then you would sort of figure it out yourself. Mm-hmm. But during, I think, I feel like during the time it came out people weren't used to that. So I think that was very necessary. Yeah. But like even even with my modern eyes, I didn't hate it. I thought it was fine, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like I, I, I just yeah. I don't know what else to say, but I just thought it was fine. I didn't hate it. Didn't love it. <laughs> it does you stick know? out a little bit. I think. Yeah, it's, it is it's kind of hard awkward. to deny. Yeah, it's it's hard to deny. It is a little bit awkward just to have this like whole five minute experience. Like, so wait, doctor, what you're telling me is right. yes, that's what I'm telling you, my dear, or stuff like that. <laughs> like, it's clearly very staged, very written. Uh, I get the sense that the person who played this psychiatrist didn't just sort of had to read the lines. 
I feel like there's there's a version of this movie that would be slightly improved if some of that were cut out. Like if it were just a few lines to get the point across. Like I forget exactly what he says, but uh, uh, says something like Norman Bates doesn't exist anymore, mm-hmm. at least not completely, or right. something like that. And then maybe one or two other lines, and then cut to the final voiceover with you know she wouldn't even hurt a fly Mm -hmm. i think that's fair to say but also i think it does help to sort of understand and again this movie is very 1960 as we've established there are a lot of things that (laughs) there to the point where it's so weird to me that the tv show bates motel takes place in the modern day like okay i get that it's kind of just like rebooting it but even Mm -hmm. still it's just so strange to see and yet that just that we know that there's never any illusion that this is any any time except 1960. So I think I think it works ultimately. Uh, does not take very much away from this movie, but there is again an alternate cut where it is better. So we've talked, guy. We've talked a lot about this movie, and I think we've we're only kind of just scratching the surface of what makes it so effective. But I feel like we got a fair amount across. Is there any final thoughts you had that you wanted to uh, give about Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho? Yes, one thing about the ending, since we were just talking about it, the mm-hmm. thing that I find interesting about it is that it sort of comes full circle from the beginning, mm. in that the very beginning of the movie feels much more objective. Like the camera, the camera doesn't feel to be following anyone Okay. at first. And then you get Marion's and then it switches to Norman mm-hmm. and then it switches to Sam and her sister, whose name is escaping me at the moment. And then it comes uh, Lila back. Crane, Vera Lila, Miles. Lila. Yes. Thank you. And it goes to their perspective and then it sort of goes back again to an objective for objective perspective with all of them just sort of sitting in the room. The camera feels a little bit more wide in that huh. scene than the other ones to me. Yeah. It so does. it feels more ob- objective and then sort of back into Norman Bates's head. Um, and then, and then the last shot of the film is them pulling the, the car out of the swamp. Yeah. Um, that's, that's pretty much it. I just felt like it like sort of just goes in a circle. That's really fascinating. I hadn't thought about that. It's weird to think there are a lot of times when I think about a movie like from beginning to end and I think, wow, the first scene and the last scene sometimes don't even feel like the same movie. And I think that's actually a good sign is that an arc has been achieved, not Mm -hmm. necessarily indicative of a good movie, but a lot of times it is. Yeah. And I think that definitely qualifies. Uh, and they actually, I, I don't know the exact details or ratios or whatever, but they used a very specific lens and camera to actually replicate like the human field of vision, uh, oh. uh, which is, which is very effective. And I think it lends this sort of voyeur aspect to the entire thing. Hell, the first thing we see is a camera like creeping into an apartment window. Right. So, and you get, you know, later POV shots of Norman creeping on, um, Marion and uh-huh. all that, you know, a lot of, a lot of really innovative stuff with the camera. I think when, uh, Martin Balsam gets killed and it's like way up high. It's very high. Yeah. I everything wrote that scene from, down in my notes. <laughs> yeah. Just everything from bird's eye views. It's remarkably effective. And so yes. almost everything about this movie is, uh, not what it would seem and is revolutionary. And uh, I will say everything about it is great. I love it. And I agree. 
I'm glad that we got to talk about it. And same, same. I just, I just love, I love watching it every time and seeing again, it's all about that middle section that just glues everything together. Yes. And it's, it's, it's rare for like the second act of the movie to be the, like the best of the movie. I feel like, <laughs> uh-huh. you know what I mean? Or at least the most memorable. So. Right. The most memorable. Yeah. A lot of times it's just sort of bridging the gap. Right. And it just has one of my favorite visual metaphors of all time where, uh, where Marion is in the shower and then Norman's mother, Teehee comes in, stabs her to death. And then the water keeps going. It's like what we have put in motion will continue after we are gone. And it's all about just trying to do the right thing, you know? Yeah, no, it's very interesting. I never thought about it like that. Wow. It's yeah, it's one of my favorite things. Yeah. So I love it. I can never get enough of it. And I wanted to watch the sequels. <laughs> yes, the sequels. Yes. Three of them to Psycho. Uh, I didn't have the chance, but I want to try and make time for that because it is October after all. So Spooky maybe I'll be able to get to that soon. Have you ever seen the remake, the Gus Van Sant remake? I have not. I've always wanted to. I've always been so curious about it, <laughs> but I've I've heard it's, that. <laughs> It's not great, but it's also kind of a fascinating experiment. Just seeing, can we recreate the greatness of a movie just by replicating it shot for shot? As it turns out, nope. (laughs) The answer is no. (laughs) Not even close. But it's interesting that it exists. And for such a a revolutionary movie that's kind of specific to its time, really fascinating stuff. So I don't like the movie, but I appreciate that it exists. Gotcha. If that makes sense. No, that makes complete sense. So Psycho comes out and is it gets kind of a mixed response, but over very quickly is recognized as one of the better movies of all time. And I think we can both concur with that. And of course, and again, we we mentioned that it's sort of inadvertently 15 years down the line, sort of influenced an entire horror subgenre. Definitely. And then we cut to 1995. Ah, the 90s. A much different type of serial killer movie. Mm-hmm. It is, of course, our second feature of the evening. A movie that I like to call Sesevenin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can never not say it like that. I That's, that's one of my favorite things to do mm-hmm. is to say, is to pronounce the number in titles where there's a yeah, number in it. Your, your classic fan four stick. That's kind of the most, that's one of the most notorious ones. I think Scriforum is another Scriforum great one. Is another good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and there are others of course that we're forgetting, but it mm-hmm. is just a, a funny way to look at a title in a new way. Mm-hmm. It's a fun and, little, uh, little gag for yourself. It really is. Yeah. Do you like what you do for a living? These things you see. You have to wear blinders sometimes. Most times. Detective William Somerset is looking for a way out. You're retiring. Six more days and you're all the way gone. So how long have you lived here? Too long. Detective David Mills is looking for a way in. We'll be spending every waking hour together from now until the time I leave. I'll show you who your friends and enemies are. Look, I'm going to come inside five years. Not here. Now, they're caught in a game. No fingerprints, no witnesses of any kind. 
Nope. About the only thing we know about that guy right now is he's totally insane. Where the price of sin is death. There are seven deadly sins. Gluttony. You're going to come take a look at this. Greed. No one touches anything. Sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Seven. You can expect five more of these. So seven is the, actually, I thought it was the second. Turns out it's the third film by now very popular director David Fincher. Right before this, he did Alien 3 in 1992, which coincidentally enough, uh, I'm actually getting to talk about in a couple of weeks with Adonis Gonzalez on Game Over, man. A little bit of synergy there. Mm -hmm. But before that, he did like a Rick Springfield concert movie. (laughs) Oh, I had no idea about that. In the late 80s, which apparently nothing notable about it whatsoever. (laughs) I'm like, I can believe that. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, he directed a lot of music videos before films, right? Yeah, I think so. So I guess that makes sense. Uh, It's just so strange to think like Rick Springfield to the third Alien movie (laughs) to to seven. seven. Yeah. (laughs) Which is funny because as it turns out, David Fincher was so disenfranchised by the experience on Alien 3, this is very well documented, that he actually never wanted to direct again. But it was because Seven was such a fascinating script that he was like, all right. And he turned out to make a really damn good movie. Now it's at this point where, Guy, I have a confession to make. Yes. Up until yesterday. (laughs) I had never seen seven. If you had asked me, <gasps> what, <laughs> Samuel, <laughs> what is your greatest, like, you know, the highest item on your cinematic bucket list, so to speak? We all have those. We all have huge movies that we haven't seen. Of For course. years, I've said seven. Like, I just <laughs> never was in the mood for whatever reason. And as a matter of fact, last summer i want to say not last summer uh, uh 2019 summer remember those days it was oh, like yeah. forever ago now i forgot about those Crazy. i did i also forgot but i <laughs> was coming up on my 2000th movie on letterbox and i was like oh man i gotta make it special so i said okay i'm gonna put it to a vote i'll watch either seven finally or the room <laughs> and the room won of course <laughs> Having now seen seven, I'm very resentful about that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I voted for the room. I think I remember that poll. <laughs> you monster. <laughs> because while seven is good, the room is better. <laughs> <laughs> you bite your tongue, sir. <laughs> for being honest with ourselves. <laughs> honest is an interesting word. <laughs> you no, know I'm what, kidding. Guy? I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm going to put you on the spot. Guy, what, I'm going to ask you right now, what's your biggest uh, bucket list item? What's off the top of your head? What would you say it is? Ooh. Uh, we I know there are probably a few. Yes, no, there are definitely a few. Because you've seen a lot of much more like 70s and 60s movies than, than I have. Uh-huh. Um, I've never seen The Conversation. That's one I've always wanted to see. Oh, really? That's a good um, one. American Graffiti is probably the biggest one. Cause I'm big, mm. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I'm a big Star Wars fan, and I've always wanted to see mm. more of George Lucas's early work. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's and a good movie. THX. T- did you know there's a sequel to American Graffiti? I did not. That's crazy. <laughs> lots of lots of weird sequels on this episode. Yes. Uh, as far as I know, there's no sequel to Seven. Ah, like there's no movie called Eight. Or 
Oh, I would have um, loved the number series. <laughs> there is a movie called Nine, though. There, there's actually a couple movies called Nine, there's so I guess the, yeah. it kind of, I guess it kind of balances out in the end. Yeah. But yeah, it wasn't until yesterday, and I was like, "It's coming up on extra milestone. Now is the time, if ever there was one." And I watched it, and my eyes were glued to the screen. I could yeah. not look away. It was one of the most remarkable things uh, I may have ever seen, and I make and I have no hesitation about saying that it is really fantastic and i'm actually and jason reed knows this but i'm actually very behind on the works of david fincher i think at, by including seven i've now only seen four of his movies i know he hasn't done like dozens and dozens of them but i've no. seen seven fight club the social network and alien three so i've got a lot to catch up on you haven't even no, seen I, my favorite of his which is what zodiac I haven't seen Zodiac. I haven't I love seen Zodiac. <laughs> I haven't seen Gone Girl either. And oh, God, uh, also great. I haven't seen Panic Room. Yeah. So you Panic know what? Room's a solid one. M- now might be the time. I-, I might have to just do a huge Fincher, Fincher dive, binge. especially because because uh, his his newer movie is coming out soon, isn't it? Uh, it is Mank. Mank. Is? Yeah, yeah. Gary Oldman. Mm-hmm. I have no idea if there's a release date on that, but yeah. So who knows anymore? Tis tis the season for a little finching, wouldn't you say? <laughs> <laughs> for a little finching i'm glad yeah <laughs> i'm glad you thought that was funny there. no that was great <laughs> tis the season for fincher <laughs> tis the yeah. fincher and uh and uh so i've i've said how i first came to it which was just yesterday because of extra milestone i'll ask you the same question i did before guy what is your history with sesevenin <laughs> i'm gonna keep saying that but <laughs> um I saw it for the first time probably when I was around 15 or 16. Oh, um, yeah, no, it's probably too young for this very graphic film. Yeah. Um, I feel like any age is too young for this. Um, it's, I think it's more dreadful than it is graphic. That's the fair. thing that got to me more is not necessarily like seeing like there's some blood in this movie. There's some violence. There's, mm-hmm. of course, corpses, mm-hmm. seven of them, in fact. But <laughs> yes. It's just especially in the like the last 30 minutes. And if, if you've seen the movie, which I certainly hope you have, and if not, stop listening right now. Go go but watch it. Go watch it. By the love of God, it's on Pause HBO Max right now. Watch all two hours and seven minutes of it, then come back. And Is it two hours and seven minutes? Yes. That's perfect. Right. <laughs> I love it. I was going to save this to the end, but I'm going to I'm going to reveal it right now. Mm-hmm. And I'll let and I'll let you continue your story in a second. But mm-hmm. I found out one of the greatest facts I've ever read about a movie seven in 1995 was the seventh highest grossing movie. Whoa. What is yes. What an insane coincidence. I'm so glad. What, Can you imagine what? if it was like the eighth, how dissatisfying yeah, would no, that have been? Be so disappointing. I'm so I'm nothing. And I needed to, I needed to read this after I needed my heart to be warmed that's one of my favorite things i've ever read oh there yeah. is some good in the universe <laughs> still but, some left somewhere anyway i i apologize for interrupting so so you yeah. were saying that uh, you were 15 ish years old do you remember the context or was it just sort of on a whim um it was a- around the same time i had started to get into fincher movies i think it might have been around the same time gone girl had come out and uh i had seen that and thought it was really good i i'd seen like you know his you know his movies before that but i decided to like really do a deep dive after watching gone girl and i watched mm-hmm. 
Aliens Cubed, Seven, <laughs> uh, Zodiac for the first time. Yeah. Um, I kind of, you know, I kind of just went through all of his stuff and just have, have been a huge fan ever since. I, he's one of my favorite directors. Nice. I'm going to, uh, why not? I'm going to ask, uh, do you have, or no, you already said Zodiac is your yeah, favorite. Zodiac right? is my number one. Yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, again, I've only seen four of them, but I think uh, Seven is hands down my favorite. I think, uh, I like the social network fine. I like Fight Club fine. Alien 3, I'm not a huge fan of. Got a lot left to watch, but thus far, man this movie <laughs> yeah no this one's very good this is definitely one of his best for sure i'm gonna be kind of i'm gonna be kind of it's such a weird feeling you know seeing a movie for the first time when you know you should have seen it years ago and right. almost just it, it, it's 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 such a strange sensation to be like wow this is what has been right there all along and i never got to it but mm-hmm. now it's here and goddamn, so seven just to set a little context is the story about uh, uh, two detectives played by Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt who realize that there is a serial killer that is, that is using the seven deadly sins as their modus operandi. I, I think I may have pronounced that wrong. And no, by may, no, I mean definitely <laughs> modus operandi yeah. is that, every one of the seven deadly sins gets a different victim and it, they just, it just has them completely baffled because there's no fingerprints. There's no real like easy leads they can go on. There's no connection. These are all completely unmotivated. Just everyone gets killed for a different reason. Once they finally catch on to that, that's when the dread sort of begins where they realize like there are, you know, after the third one, there are four more people who are going to die if we don't do anything about this. And and they just can't get a lead. And it's not until they figure out where the person lives that they that they go like to the apartment and that's when things start kicking into high gear and they have to resort to a lot of really sort of unsanctioned uh, activities, including like, you know, talking to the FBI and getting on some, you know, secret invasion of privacy list and stuff like that. And so it's uh, it's, it's definitely a detective thriller. It's in that genre, but everything about this movie is dreary. And that is something that a lot of times pisses me off. Like <laughs> I hate gloom in movies. I think the, and th- this is going to sound like such a weird example, but the, I remember the worst one, the the worst movie that I thought did this was the movie. Let me in. Did you ever see that? The remake of let the right one in? Yes, I did see. I did see that one. That is just this piss yellow movie. And <laughs> it's, it hurts to look at because there's no reason for it to look that way. And I just, I don't know why that one specifically, I just remember it driving me completely nuts. And I realized at while watching this movie, as a matter of fact, is because it feels so insincere almost everywhere else. It feels like they're just sort of trying to add this filter to the visual style of a movie to make it seem like it's darker or more serious tonally and visually. This movie earns it it is new york city and it has no hope for humanity at all like everything sucks in this movie there are a couple of moments of levity but for the most part it is just 
miserable dreariness. And I love that it's willing to go into that so unforgivingly, especially when we, when the whole premise of the movie is centered around just this senseless killer who's just preying on human beings for no good reason because because they feel like they have to it depressed the hell out of me and i kind of loved it for that because <laughs> so few movies are willing to go that deep in it does does that all make sense what i'm saying um i i agree it is very very dreadful but i think at the same time it's also a little more optimistic in a way mm. because I mean, this is, I'm very curious. How do you think? <laughs> Mainly, <laughs> I know it's going to be hard to argue, but mostly through uh, Morgan Freeman's character arc, right? Because mm. he starts off the film very pessimistic and just sort of just angry at this city because of how, you know, crime is taken over and everything's bad and all that. But after everything that happens at the end of the movie, when I believe it's his captain who asks him, you know, what are you going to do now? He just says, I'll be around. Mm. And I like to think that that's him sort of learning from everything that had happened and sort of, uh, sort of the opposite of psycho, uh, not letting the darkness sort of take over his, his life and his view of the world. Because mm. uh, over the course of the movie, it feels like Brad Pitt is changing him because he gives that, um, not really monologue, just, you know, that exchange that they have at the bar towards the end of the movie where uh, Morgan Freeman is talking about how, you know, everything's awful and everything. And then Brad Pitt says, no, you want me to agree with you, but I'm not going to agree with you because you just, you believe in those things because you quit, you know, not the other way around. Right. Hmm. And so I sort of, I always sort of took that last line as him being more optimistic and, and also the last, very last line. Hold on. I have have my notes. Um, yeah, I was going to bring this up because I love this yes. little coda here. The very last line, the world is is a fine place and worth fighting for. Ernest Hemingway once said, I agree with the first part. Or, or second <laughs> part, sorry. I agree with the second part is what he says. And, yeah. and I, don't, I, I didn't feel like he thought that at the beginning of the movie. And I also found mm-hmm. out during doing research that that line was originally supposed to be the first line of the movie, that voiceover that Morgan Freeman gives. Yeah, yeah. It turns out that was kind of tacked on to the ending. It was yeah. supposed to be again huge spoiler alert. Uh, the movie originally, I, I can't remember if it was David Fincher or someone else. They wanted it to end with just Brad Pitt shooting John Doe in the head, right. and then it would just end like really abruptly. And I think that would have been effective. It would have been equally as bleak. But I love that we just have this final line, sort of putting a button on the entire arc of Morgan Freeman's character and kind of the movie as a whole, right. kind of the thesis of the entire thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting that he would feel like that at the end of the movie after seeing some of the worst things anyone could see. Oh, oh God. <laughs> you know? And so I, what's in the box? Oh. <laughs> what's in the box? <laughs> you know, what's funny. What? And this is going to seem strange and I'm fascinated by if you or anyone listening has had the same reaction. Mm-hmm. I knew about that scene going in, obviously, because the internet just made me aware of it. And so it was not, I was not like surprised to find out what was happening. And that's, that I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. Like there's only so much you can, you know, keep yourself secret from. And while I can imagine it would have been amazing to get to experiencing, uh, to, to get to experience that reveal 
for the first time while watching the movie, I think I'd find the way it was. I think the, the, the other time when that happened was the sixth sense. And I was pissed off because I'm like, dang it. I wanted to get that reveal. Yeah. This one, not as much I, for whatever reason. But when that when Brad Pitt starts saying what's in the box, the famous line mm-hmm. has this weird delivery on it. That's not what you would expect if you just read it. Like he's almost sort of whining and getting like really high pitched and stuff. Mm-hmm. I was so like, especially because for like a half hour up until that point, I knew what was going to happen. I'm like, Oh my gosh. Oh no. Oh buddy. Yeah. I saw that and I started laughing interesting i couldn't do anything else i did like i was i was i was so broken (laughs) i just i just and i wasn't like dying laughing or anything but i just sort of out loud was like (laughs) like what do i do an interesting reaction have you ever had anything like that I, i don't think i have not that i can recall anyway especially not with this movie especially watching it again i was still like you know like very very bad for brad pitt in his situation uh that you know what actually come to think of it uh have did did you know the twist when you first saw the movie good question uh i believe i did i believe i did way back when yeah 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 because it's been it you know at that point the movie was like almost 20 years old so it it had made its way onto the internet i'm pretty sure i guess I guess that's just kind of one of the things that will never be kept sacred again, unless some parent, God bless them, (laughs) goes out of their way to like make sure that their child never finds out what happens in a certain movie until they're old enough to see it. Uh, That day, that day has passed and that's just something that we have to deal with. It just, it's, it's, it just was the thing that pushed me over the edge and i was like i can't take it anymore i have to let something out and wow. it, as it turns out it was a laugh <laughs> i just couldn't help it i don't know what it was interesting freudian response <laughs> it really was yeah you know it's funny hmm. this movie was nominated for one oscar really? for editing for editing the editing is great <laughs> it is it's not the standout lost, thing <laughs> lost to apollo 13 for which i'm like whatever yeah, okay, okay sure. that's fine <laughs> serious there's so many awards this should have been nominated for picture for one yeah definitely i mean that, that was 95 so braveheart won oh, of course. what's what what's with that yeah. <laughs> i've actually never seen braveheart i have a long time ago yeah mm-hmm. is it as meh as i've heard yeah no, i mean it's it's good but like yeah also yeah. it's mel gibson so like <laughs> that's <know>. true <laughs> so you know it's yeah. problematic by today's standards but you know <laughs> And then I think at least, like, what, what, are are Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman both lead actors? Do you think? I think it's a two hander. I know. I agree. Yeah. So they could have very easily been both nominated. Yeah. And uh, and I and I like their rapport in this movie. It's very much a a good cop bad cop movie. And I like that the movie never really takes a side about which one of their uh, w- which method for approaching this crime is the better one I, mm. i'm granted brad pitt gets punished horrendously at the end yes but uh <laughs> but I, I don't think i don't think that's necessarily the movie making a statement i think it's just kind of the natural progression of what this killer is going to do uh 
And so I like that there is room for both. There's room for sort of the, uh, what's the word, uh, intellectual sort of academic methodical approach that Morgan Freeman has. Mm -hmm. And then also the seriously, let's, we, let's do whatever we can by any means we can very aggressively uh, method right. that Brad Pitt has. Right. Cause they both sort of work out at different points until the end. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Until the end. And, and you know what that ending, a lot of people had to fight for that ending. The studio was just fighting tooth and nail. Like uh, maybe it can be something else. Like maybe, uh, maybe, it, maybe it's the dog's head in the box. They're like, no, yeah, that wouldn't be that emotionally impactful. Oh. If it was just the dog's head. Thank goodness. Yeah. It wasn't. Can you imagine? Yeah, no, that'd be, that'd be bad. That'd be a very anticlimactic ending for, for this movie. And you know what? I was watching the movie and there was that scene where Gwyneth Paltrow and Morgan Freeman like have breakfast together or something. And she's like, so I'm pregnant. And I'm like, no, (laughs) no, that I didn't know. So that that really added to it. Yeah, no, that definitely adds much more pain to it. Yeah, we're 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 being a little sporadic here, but I want to ask Guy, if you had to sort of summarize and we've we've talked about a lot of it so maybe a little thesis combining them all Mm -hmm. if you had to summarize why you think this movie works so well what do you think it is because it's something that i'm still having just seen i'm still trying to sort of piece together a little bit so you've had a little more experience with it what do you think it is that makes it so effective 25 years later that's a good question um i realized this time around that i think the pacing helps a lot Mm-hmm. I think it's very incredibly well paced the way the killings come in and how, you know, sort of takes place over seven days. Yep. And it just, it just moves. And, you know, next thing you know, you're at the end where you're just like, what's going to happen? Um, yeah. I did not feel a second of this movie's runtime. Exactly. Not that two hours and seven minutes yeah. is like horrendously long right. or anything, but that's, that's longer than a lot of movies. And I, and it just kept chugging along. And so I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's, it's a breeze to get through mostly mm-hmm. and i you know the way the, the the murders roll in and how brutal each of them is in their own way mm-hmm. um yeah i mean i don't know what it is specifically honestly honestly don't know either i haven't seen this movie that many times but oh yeah i don't know what it is specifically but it definitely it just it just moves you know i think i think part of it at the very least is the unstoppability hmm. of all of it they fail at the end of this movie. Like everyone that John Doe set out to kill is now dead. Like the mission has been accomplished, misguided as it, as it may have been, Mm -hmm. it worked. And so it's, it's just so bleak. And there's, there's this constant hope, like maybe they'll get a lead. Maybe they'll figure something out. Maybe, maybe they'll gain the upper hand and they never do. Not at all. And the movie has no, again, as I said earlier, has no illusions about that. It is very much leaning into the dark side of the human psyche. And now it is at this point where we bring up, and I don't want to dwell on this for too long, but it's kind of the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. John Doe, it is Kevin Spacey, who of course has been in in the public eye for different reasons than anyone would hope over the past uh, three years now. And there's there's a, there are a lot of different ways to sort of approach it. I am very much on the side, and I know there's plenty of arguments to the contrary, but I am very much on the side of uh, 
trying at least to separate the art from the artist. Now I know that this, there are lives out there that have been permanently changed by this man. And that's something that most of us will never be able to even comprehend. So obviously there's, there's definitely room for a lot of argument. Are you, are you kind of in the same boat guy or do you have a different perspective on it or what, what do you think? No, I'm I'm 100% with you that, he has ruined a lot of people's lives with the things that he has mm-hmm. done. And, and I agree with you. I think, you know, I try to separate the art from the artist as much as I can, you know, as much as humanly possible. Um, because, you know, I still like the first two X-Men movies, even though Brian mm-hmm. Singer directed those, Yeah, you know, and, you know, we now know how gross of a human being he is. Yeah. But I mean, you know, like we were talking about before, Kevin Spacey has been in, some of the most popular movies in the past 30 years. So it's kind of hard to avoid him entirely. It really is. I think it, it certainly helps in this very specific case that he's a serial killer and right. a villain. <laughs> yeah. So you're like, you're okay with it. That certainly helps. Yeah. And plus he's not in the movie that much. So no. I just, I wanted to make sure we address that, but yeah, there's, so if, if, if you can't watch this movie, then I totally get it. And I think that is something that should not be, I I think it's certainly a case by case basis kind of thing for where, uh, yes, it is possible to separate art from the artist because we do it all the time. We see things having no idea, even who created it, what they've done with their lives are like happens every day, Mm -hmm. like hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, it's about whether or not we should. And I think it's completely up to anyone. I think like again, I don't want to. I don't want to dwell on it too much, but uh, it is something that is your choice, you know. Right. And so, totally I think in this you. case, exactly, and and so I I believe in this case that it's at least convenient in some sort of strange way. Uh, and while it did sort of take away a little bit from just being able to be completely wrapped up into it. I think the movie still works tremendously well and agreed. I really, really loved it. And of course I'm sure I can't wait to just, uh, well, actually I can wait to watch this again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, it's a hard one to sit through. It's a hard one to sit through. And man, the, 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 my teeth were clenched harder than they've ever (laughs) been clenched. Just that entire ride through the desert feels, feels like it took forever ever like it felt like 45 minutes of just talking and building up to the twist ending and so i think that's that makes it only more effective on rewatch potentially and so i look forward to the day i can't say i'm necessarily excited for it (laughs) but this is a movie that i'm so delighted to finally have seen and i can't wait to just discover more and more about why i love it and one last thing I want to bring up is sort of the sort of the ideology of this movie, which is a little bit hard to suss out because obviously it involves a lot of biblical elements. Again, the seven deadly sins and sort of the a, a lot of the research they do is these sort of older, uh, older like tomes, you know, that were written centuries ago. And the villain is very much inspired by sort of some godly entity that they've presumably just conjured up out of thin air. And so I want to ask, what do you make? And I know this is a hard question, Mm -hmm. but 
what do you make of this movie's view of humanity? We sort of touched on a little bit earlier how you think it's a little bit more optimistic. Do you think that goes for the entire thing, how that's kind of what the viewer is meant to take away? Or what what are your thoughts on that? No, I think that is that's is what the viewer is supposed to take away because uh, you were talking about the, the car ride uh, to the desert a second mm-hmm. ago. And, you know, through that car ride, Kevin Spacey reveals his, you know, sort of his motivations for everything, you know, why he's doing everything. And I realized watching it this time that his beliefs actually line up a lot with Morgan Freeman's beliefs. Mm. But John Doe is sort of like, the worst version of Morgan Freeman, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like the, that taken to its illogical uh, conclusion to the point of ruining countless lives. Yes. You know? Yes. No, exactly. And, and I think that that is sort of another part of Freeman's characters, you know, realization that, you know, he shouldn't be as, you know, as angry at the world as he was and that he mm-hmm. should, he should change. Cause I think the first time that happens is when Brad Pitt and he have that conversation at the bar, but then that happens with uh, John Doe and that really sort of confirms it for him, which is why I think at the end of the movie, he says, you know, I'll be around. And then mm-hmm. the final Ernest Hemingway quote at the end of the movie. I think that that's a lot to think about. And yeah. Honestly, I'm not entirely sure where I stand, of course, because of just how draining the movie is. <laughs> I'm I'm a little bit more inclined to look at this as a pessimistic movie, but you brought up a lot of really fantastic points that I think make a lot of sense. So uh, that's that definitely something I'm now considering. And yeah, that's kind of the thing I love the most about this movie is just while it is a wonderfully functional detective thriller mm-hmm. and... Uh, sort of a sort of a moody like art piece kind of tucked away in the middle of it it is also it it seems to be sort of this thesis on humanity much in the same way you know what it actually reminded me of was uh your favorite movie the dark knight where yes, no it's very very similar to that movie <laughs> i'm like oh this is kind of like the inspiration for that joker right here right and i could definitely see it and yeah, there's there's definitely a lot to unpack in this movie. I I, w- I wish I could have contributed some something more thoughtful to it, but <laughs> I mean, it's your first time watching it, so I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's, we we all we've all got to have a first time for everything, you know. So exactly, I've seen this movie a couple of times, so I've I've had I had some thoughts. <laughs> Suffice it to say, I thought it was uh, it was it was really really effective in just about every way. And I can't wait to see it again. Uh, here I am 25 years later, still appreciating it. So yeah, it holds up. I was glad to have gone on this journey, uh, with the movie and with you guy. Thank you for joining me on this episode of extra milestone. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. I look forward to, uh, getting to do it again sometime. Wouldn't you say? Yes. Same here. Same here. Yeah. So Guy, why don't you let the listeners know where can they find you on this worldwide web of ours? You can find me on Twitter at Guy underscore Simons JR. Hmm. JR is short for junior. Ah, is that what it um, is? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> for for those of you who didn't know. And you can also find me on Instagram under the same handle. So, you know, synergy. Nice. <laughs> I'm also on Twitter at Nolan Sam. It's just my two names, but reversed. Thanks, Twitter. Ooh. Yeah. 
Exciting. And I'm also on Letterboxd, just my name, Sam Noland. Uh, that's where I log everything I watch and where I spend most of my time online. I also host two other shows on the Cinemaholics Patreon account. It is Game Over, man, the Alien and Predator podcast, and a nice place to visit the Twilight Zone podcast. Both of those I co-host with Adonis Gonzalez. And those are yours every single week for as low as $2 a month. It's a really fun time. We hope that you'll join us there. And without any further ado, I believe that is all we got from uh, from the shower drain of humanity where everything ends up eventually. I'm Sam Nolan. I don't have a joke, but I'm Guy Simons. <laughs> and we'll I wish I had thought of something, but I hadn't. <laughs> and we'll see you on the next Extra Milestone. <laughs>